Well, good morning, and happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there, and uh, this is a late morning to any of you who forgot that today is Mother's Day. You're already in the doghouse. I'm glad that you're here in the room this morning, and thank you to all of you who are joining us in worship online this morning. We hope you just have an amazing day. Uh, This is our fourth week, as Amy said, uh, in the the, um, Ancient Wisdom series, and we're digging into some of the lesser-known visions. Uh, individuals in the Old Testament. And for Mother's Day, I wanted us to look at the story of Deborah. Hers is a brief, powerful, paradigm-breaking story. It's told in in chapter 4 of the Old Testament book of Judges, and it's there that we learn that the nation of Israel had been subjugated by a neighboring king. And his top general was Sisera, Sisera commanded the entire army, which included 900 iron chariots that he used to ruthlessly oppress the Israelites for 20 years. Now, when I read a little phrase like, for 20 years they were oppressed, when I read that phrase, my mind immediately goes to wondering what it was like to live under the brutal cruelty of Sisera. His iron chariots were the latest in technological warfare. And he had used them as killing platforms to dispatch the weak and the wounded and the frightened. So what was it like for the people of Israel to be under that constant threat for 20 years? A same 20-year period that they had turned away from God and were just completely ignoring him. It was bad enough, whatever it was like, that the people of Israel eventually cried out to God for help. And God answers. But he has an amazing surprise in store for the nation of Israel and for us because he chooses Deborah as a prophet, as a judge, and as a military leader for the nation. God sending a woman to lead them sent shockwaves through their male-dominated culture. Deborah, I think, is one of the most remarkable people in all of the Bible. As a prophet, she was the nation's spiritual leader and one of only four women in the entire Bible to carry that title. She was a judge who decided legal matters from everything from a dispute between two individuals to policies for the nation. And she was a mighty warrior who commanded armies of thousands. Deborah is without equal among the 12 judges and nearly without equal in biblical history. She was a savvy leader, and she was a force to be reckoned with. Now, Deborah's legacy is told in just two chapters in the book of Judges. In chapter 4, it's in narrative form. In chapter 5, it's a song. And you will be extremely grateful to know that I've chosen this morning not to sing you chapter 5 as the message. You should be really grateful. But as we walk through the story this morning, we're going to take parts of both chapters and we're going to discover that Deborah's success came against some pretty incredible odds. Let's start with chapter 4, verse 4. It says, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. That's a big statement. She was leading Israel. Even today, it's rare for any Middle Eastern country to select a female leader. Imagine how shocking this was thousands of years before the birth of Jesus. Deborah held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethlehem 
I'm sorry, in Bethel, in the hill country of Ephraim. I think I get bonus points this morning for the number of Hebrew names that are going to come up in this passage. And the Israelites went up to Deborah to have their disputes decided. So she's working full-time as a judge, enough so that she's got her own place under a palm tree named for her, and they know where to go to see the judge. At the same time, she's remaining keenly aware that Sisera has this imminent attack. She sent for Barak, one of her military generals, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, two of the 12 tribes of Israel, and lead these men up to Mount Tabor. And I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. It's a very bold move. Here's Barak's response. He says, if you go with me. Now, we need to hear that little statement in its right context. It's not a statement of confidence in Deborah, like if you go with me, we're going to win, and if you don't, I mean, we're in trouble. No, it's if you go with me, as in beside me, not leading your own section of the army. If you go with me, Because, you know, I'm a man, and you're a woman. If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. At this point, you can almost hear Deborah letting out this deep sigh. And she says, certainly, I'll I'll go with you. But because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, you would think what Deborah's saying there is, oh, I'll go with you, but you're going to see me kill Sisera instead of you. That's going to be your payment for your lack of trust. That would make sense, but let's see how it plays out in the story. And so what happens then is Deborah and Barak gather up 10,000 soldiers. They head out to fight Sisera, and then there is this stray piece of information. It's at least what it looks like, this stray piece of information in Judges 4.11, which says, now Heber the Kenite, which was a foreign group of people, not a part of the nation of Israel, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, who was actually Moses' brother-in-law, and Heber pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'ananim near Kedesh. This seems like a really random, odd detail stuck in the story, right? I mean, we're talking about Deborah and Barak and this huge battle it's building. And out of nowhere, the author of the book of Judges tells us about this dude who couldn't get along with his neighbors or his family. And so he takes his camper and he parks it out in the desert. It's just weird. But as we read on, it's not completely random. So Barak takes all the troops to the top of Mount Tabor. This is a picture of Mount Tabor today. It's this massive hill surrounded by a river basin. It towers above the valley below. And there is no way that 10,000 soldiers are going to sneak to the top of that hill without being seen. But if they succeed, they now have the high ground for this military battle. When Sisera hears that Barak's army is headed there, he brings his entire army, including his 900 chariots, into the Kishon River Valley near the base of Mount Tabor. And in chapter 5, the victory song tells us that when the battle began, 
the skies opened up and it rained hard. Chariots only have one really big weakness in battle. They don't mix well with mud. They don't move. The horses can't pull them. And so these chariots are almost useless to Sisera now. What was his strength is now a weakness. And as his army attacked, they did so without their primary strength. And they were now attacking an army that had the high ground. Sisera is no fool. He watches this battle. He's engaged in this battle, and he's a seasoned general. He sees where this is headed. And so he gets out of his chariot, and he runs away from the battle. And Barak and his army pursues every soldier in Sisera's army until every last one of them is dead, and they realize Sisera is not among them. And so Barak sets out after Sisera literally running for his life, Sisera realizes he's not going to make it out of Israel before he gets caught. And so he staggers up to the only structure that he sees on the horizon, the tent of Heber, the Kenite. Turns out this isn't a random detail at all. Sisera runs towards Jael, Heber's wife, and begs for protection and water. And Jael gave him something to drink, something that was a comforting, nourishing drink. It was a mixture of milk and curds. I think I would have rather died, just to be honest. It's kind of like a yogurt smoothie without the blender, you know, maybe a yogurt chunky. Um, It just doesn't sound good, but it was a very calming, welcoming, comforting drink in that day. And so exhausted now... um, Jael takes Sisera into her tent, covers him with a blankie, and assures him he's safe and promises to conceal his presence from anybody who comes by. Jael's hospitality disarms Sisera. He's exhausted. He's got a full belly. He's in a warm tent under a great blanket. What do you think happened? He fell asleep. And Jael, he bears, this is where it goes into like a strong PG-13 rating in Judges. Heber's wife picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quiet. Yeah, yeah, I heard one of the guys over here go, whoa. I mean, better sleep with one eye open, guys, if you're like Cicero. She went to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted, and she drove the peg through his temple and into the ground, and he died. I mean, those last three words, like, seem a bit obvious, don't they? And he died. Moments later, Barak arrives in pursuit of Sisera, only to discover that Deborah's prophecy had been fulfilled. Sisera is dead. Twenty years of oppression are over, and all because of two strong, courageous women. It's an amazing story. In the New Testament, Paul tells us that All of these stories are warning markers in our history books written down so we don't repeat their mistakes. So what is there in terms of ancient wisdom from this story of Deborah? Let me suggest a couple of ideas. First, what we often consider random events may in the end turn out to be God at work in our lives. Think about the random stuff in the story and how it looked to the people living in that moment. We get to look back with hindsight and see how it all plays out. We know the end of the story before we start watching the movie. So in this case, what did it look like to them? Why would Heber move to the middle of nowhere? 
Is that just coincidence? What are the odds of a rainstorm happening in the middle of dry season in the Middle East? And what are the odds that rainstorm would begin on the exact morning that the battle ensued? Where the Israelites were outnumbered and facing Sisera's chariots. Is it just pure luck? And there was no logical reason for Jael to risk everything to help the Israelites. Jael didn't have a dog in this fight. She was a foreigner living in a foreign land. And Barak would not have written her into his battle plan. The details of this story often seem random and out of place and disconnected, and it's only at the end that we see how God was at work in ways that no one understood in the moment. I think our lives are a lot like that. These events of our lives often seem disconnected. What we look at in our life, I've come to view it as looking at the back of a tapestry. When you look at a back of a tapestry like this, it's not this beautiful work of art, this labor of love. All you see when you look at the tapestry now is random, loose, disconnected threads. And only occasionally does God pull up the corner of the tapestry and show us the beautiful thing he's creating in our lives and through our lives. We just get glimpses. And when we see it, then we're able to look back and understand that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Not that all things are good, but that he will work them for our good in ways we may not see, in ways we may not understand. God is at work in every season of our lives, in the hard and the easy, in the painful and the joyful. Second piece of wisdom I think we gain from Deborah's story is this, and it's super important. God gifts and uses women the same as he does men. If Westridge has been your only church home, that may not sound like a revolutionary idea to you. But for some of us, that statement is light years away from what we grew up with in church. Growing up, I was taught only men could lead. And that may not sound like your upbringing, but it was mine. And they only men could lead, and at least they were the ones who led the really important stuff in the church. The men led the committees. The men served in all the leadership functions. Men were the only teachers, especially up front on a Sunday morning. And women? They were taught to remain silent and to follow male leadership in the church. It wasn't just assumed. It wasn't something that was just implied in the church I grew up in. It was aggressively taught and modeled. And women took on lesser roles in the church always, regardless of their spiritual maturity, their leadership ability, or their giftedness. Individual churches and entire denominations have built elaborate systems of belief and practice based on a couple of really difficult-to-understand passages in the New Testament. Passages that have loomed so large on our church cultures that we've allowed them to color everything else the Bible teaches about the roles of men and women in the home, in the church, and in the community. Thankfully, As I got older and I was exposed to more scripture and more churches, 
my views evolved. I don't think we can read stories like Deborah's in the Bible. I don't think we can see God at work in and through Deborah and cling to those conservative lines of thought. The writer in Judges introduces Deborah as the first solo female leader in Israel's history. She was given absolute spiritual, judicial, and military authority in a patriarchal society. And as such, Deborah's life stands as a vivid reminder that God's ways are often so different from our ways. And Jael, the other woman in this story, (laughs) she emerges as the real hero. She single-handedly slays the ruthless villain. This quiet, unknown housewife exhibits incredible strength and power and cunning. In the middle of uh, Eastern, in Middle Eastern culture, both Jael and Deborah would have been considered little more than property of their husbands, because women in that culture typically had no voice, they had no rights, and they had no life beyond the shadow of their husband. These two women move beyond all those stereotypes. They break down our preconceived ideas. Deborah and Jael throw off our culture's sense of order and appropriateness. And they're not the only example in Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, there are women who led their homes and led their community in faith. There were women who were teachers and great role models. The New Testament expands that even more, and women were teachers and leaders. They were local church planters, and they were mentors. Far from being an anomaly, I believe that Deborah stands out as an an example that God chooses and equips, not based on our gender, but on the work he calls us to do. I am very proud on this day to be the husband and father and father-in-law of three incredible women. These three women have so many gifts in their life. Included among them is the gift of leadership. And at a deeply personal level, I am thrilled when around here or out in the community, people bump into, discover, meet my wife before they meet me. They've already at that point met met the better two-thirds of this relationship. They get to know what an incredible person she is and what a leader she is. And she is so much more than simply a pastor's wife, and I'm grateful. Beyond that, we have incredible female leaders here at Westridge, women who are insightful, who are visionary, who are discerning, bold leaders. Three of them serve on our leadership team. Here at Westridge, one of them serves on our teaching team. At Westridge, women lead ministry teams. They lead our local outreach. They lead our international outreach teams. They lead and serve in every area of our church while also being incredible mothers and leaders in their home and in the community. There's a deep sadness inside of me that well-meaning church leaders have drawn lines for centuries around gender, lines based on color and gender and economic status and more, lines that define who leads and who does not. Lines like this, all they do is divide us. These lines minimize people. They limit women's gifts and potential. These lines cripple the work of God that he wants us to do in our church and in our world. My hope this morning 
is that every one of you women who are in this room feel an incredible sense of freedom and empowerment at Westridge. In fact, the only thing I know of that women don't do here at Westridge is lead a men's community group. Man, honestly, they might be better if some of you did. It's really clear when you read the Bible. In Galatians, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And so there is no Jew or Gentile. There's no ethnic division in the family of God. There is neither slave nor free. There's no economic division. And there is neither male nor female. There is no gender line of delineation. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All of culture, all of history were against Deborah succeeding. But she was a strong, gifted leader. She listened to God and followed him without question. In a culture that would have normally left her on the sidelines, she's proven to be the wisest and most creative person, not just woman, person in the nation of Israel. What if she had chosen to sit this one out? What if she had chosen to stay on the sidelines? I think Deborah's example calls every one of our women in our church to take a very bold step today. We need strong, courageous women who will model and challenge us to live radically different lives. Deborah's story, I hope, empowers you to figure out how God has uniquely gifted you, how God has called you, and the challenges he sets in front of you. They call every one of you in this room to encourage women who are beginning that journey of exploration and encourage women who are leading. And men, above all people in this room, we need to be advocates for the women in our lives to lead. Women of Westridge, I would beg you, don't spend your life sitting on the sideline. We need more Deborahs in our church, in our families, in our world. We need women who will use their voice and their God-given abilities and their leadership to challenge every one of us to give and to pray and to go and to sacrifice and to personally lead us in that charge. We need women who will teach us how to live for God with wisdom and courage and faith. So I just ask you, ladies, this morning, please don't sit this one out. Dare to be a Deborah.